Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. He's going to come, and then after a while they didn't believe he would come, and then finally he did come, and he did, and he was exactly who he claimed to be. And then the Lord claiming that he'd come back to life and come again. And there are people today that say, okay, I can believe he came the first time, but he isn't here yet. Things aren't happening. 2,000 years, maybe they're having doubts about the first time if that really was him. And probably it wasn't, and he's not going to come back again. And yet, every time the Lord fulfills every single promise and prophecy to the T when it's mentioned in Scripture. So all the prophecies about him coming the first time have already been completed. And then the prophecies of Him coming again are waiting for us because we know that He is coming. And we could even see that coming as we look at what He said would be happening shortly before He did come. So Jesus Christ, He did come, He did die, He rose again from the dead, and He's alive forevermore. I want to welcome you with us today, to be with us today, and I hope that you could be engaged in today's message. And the reason I say that is because while it might sound a little bit more historical, a little bit more like a story, I want you to know that it is historical. It's more than just a story. It's an event that had an eternal purpose. And I'd like very much for you to follow along in a Bible. And if you have one with you, you might want to pull it out and turn to John chapter 20. And if you came without a Bible, I'm sure you can see the little Bibles that are there in the chairs in front of you under the rack there if you want to pull one out and I'm going to be using the New American, but uh, use whatever version best works for you. I like a little bit more of a literal translation. You know, at the uh, Resurrection Sunday time, I often like to ask people if uh, they don't mind taking a little quiz on the resurrection just to see how, how well they'll do on it. And I'm going to ask you three questions and just to see how you might do. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to shout it out. And I'm not here to embarrass you. But maybe by giving you this, you'll have a little bit of a background. First of all, the question would be, how would you define the resurrection in one word? How would you personally define the resurrection in one word? Maybe it would be life, like eternal life. Maybe it would be rebirth. Some might define it as absolutely miraculous, and that would be their word. Another would say salvation. Another would say alive. Maybe you'd even say I now have hope. I now have a guarantee that I have heaven waiting for me. However you might want to define resurrection, I want you to know that it deals with not just the resurrection of the Lord. It also deals with the resurrection life that you can have in Christ. Here's the second question. How long was Jesus on this earth after he died and rose, but before he finally ascended up to heaven? How many days was it? One day, two days, three days, four days, five days? It was 40 days before he left the earth. And the last question is this, out of those 40 days, did he take a vacation? Did he go out to the desert and hide? Was he seen by others? And the answer, of course, would be yes. Then how many people do you think saw the resurrected Savior? We know in Scripture that it was over 500 that saw him alive before the ascension, and there were even some that saw him since then. And if you'll notice in the back of the little outline that I've given to you, I've listed many of the different groups of people in the verses so that you would know that Jesus Christ, he did rise again from the dead, but he revealed himself to others. Often we say that the gospel means the good news, and it really does. It's the good news of Jesus dying, rising again, and then all that's wrapped up in it is our faith in that so that we could have eternal life. So by trusting Christ as the Lord who died and rose again, we have eternal life. 
But what is the gospel? Some people would like to say, well, the gospel is the death and the burial and the resurrection, and they get that from 1 Corinthians 15. And I get that too, and that's a pretty accurate answer. But if I want to be the most technical answer, actually the gospel is the death and the resurrection of Christ. You see, here's what happens. Jesus Christ died, but what proves that there's a death if you don't have a dead body? And so Jesus Christ is the dead body. He was dead when they finally pulled him off the cross and they put him in the tomb. Jesus was dead, 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 dead. So that proves that Jesus Christ died. There was a body there. But then what proves a resurrection? There really is no proof of a resurrection unless someone sees Christ alive. And that's why I've listed all these people here that saw Christ alive, indicating again that there is a resurrection. He did come back to life because these people saw him. Let's look at the list quickly. Mary Magdalene saw him, John chapter 20. The women returning to the tomb in Matthew 28. First Peter, later in, in the day, saw him in Luke. And 1 Corinthians talks about it. To the disciples going to the, on the Emmaus trip in the evening. 11, uh, Luke uh, 24. To the apostles, except for Thomas at that time, Luke 24. To the apostles a week later, this time Thomas being present. In Galilee to the seven by the, law, by the lake of Tiberias. In Galilee again on a mountain to the apostles and 500 believers testified in 1 Corinthians 15. At Jerusalem and Bethany again to James. At Olivet and the Ascension in Acts 1. To Paul near Damascus in Acts 9. To Stephen outside of Jerusalem in Acts 7. To Paul in the temple in Acts 22, to John on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1. All again testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. Now that being true, there's something else that makes it even more real for us. When Jesus Christ revealed himself alive and those people connected to them, their lives were different because of it. Because they experienced the scene of Jesus Christ alive, their lives changed, and I believe forever. So while we're going through this, we're studying about Jesus Christ revealing himself, particularly to Peter, to John, and then, of course, to Mary. I'd like you, then, to experience Christ, not just historically, but that your lives will be different because of it. Some of you, it could be dramatically different when you experience Christ. I don't mean you're going to jump up and down and do wild and crazy things, but there is some transformation that goes inside of you that quickly reveals that there is a change in your life forever because you trusted in the ever-living Jesus Christ Lord who died and rose again for you. That's what happened. What's interesting, if we have the time to cover this entire story in John chapter 20, it begins really with a question mark, but it ends with an exclamation point. And as I got thinking about that, I got thinking that this happens to be probably the largest, biggest, most important question mark in all of history. And that was, where is Christ? Where is he? And then at the end, it ends with an exclamation point, which is, he is risen. Basically, he is risen indeed. And maybe you have some question marks about the Lord. Some of you are, what about this? And I don't understand that. And so you're entering into your relationship with Christ very much like the guys and the gals that were in the Bible days. You didn't really see him or experience him yet. So you've got a big question mark. That's okay. But my prayer is that you will really connect, engage into the Jesus of the Bible, scriptural Jesus, that at the end of today, or very soon, you will end with the same exclamation point. And it's one that's very easy to have. And I pray that it'll be your case. Well, let's now get right into John chapter 20, if you will. And before I get into some of the points that might you could take home of really how to know Christ, let's get some details. So let's look at verse 1, if you will. Follow along. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Here's a couple of details that might be helpful to you. First of all, it talks about they came early. 
Those of you that know a little bit about Jewish history, they could not get near that dead body, especially any time near the Passover on Saturday, Sabbath. So they had to wait until Passover Sabbath was now over. So now the Sabbath is over, and what's happening is these ladies, particularly Mary, is just running as fast as they can to anoint the body to be able to experience what's going on to see Jesus at that time. And so she runs there. Some people say it was so early in the morning that it was like 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning. And I got thinking, if that was the case, can you imagine? She probably stayed up all night or she got up very early. But her passion was, I've got to see where Jesus is. Maybe I can anoint. Maybe there's something. What's happened? She's got to figure all of this out. So it was early. And then it says it was the first day of the week. Now, that is telling us that that would be after the Sabbath because Sabbath would end at 6 o'clock on Saturday night. We, as Christians, we choose to worship the Lord on Sunday morning. Now, Scripture doesn't say you must worship the Lord on Sunday morning. You'll find in Romans it says some men, some people will worship the Lord on one day, some on another day, some will worship Him every day of the week. It really doesn't matter as long as you worship Him from the inside out. But you'll find all the way back that they usually would worship the Lord on Sunday as a way to once again celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Some churches, they will have their Saturday evening services, usually after 6 o'clock, and they'll consider that Sunday because the Sabbath is over and now we're ready to worship the Lord and that becomes the first day of the week. I'm not here to really hammer you on what day that you really worship Him, but it is good for us to remember that the church, the early church, today's church, that they would then do this on this particular day. And I'm glad that we could gather like this openly and publicly. But there's another phrase in there that says that the stone was taken away. So it sounds like someone came there, lifted up the stone, and purposely stepped it, set it aside. Well, we don't know that for a fact, but we do know this from the original language, that actually it wasn't like it was taken. The Greek actually says that the stone was thrown aside. It was actually kind of just by the power of God just cast aside because it was a purpose. And part of that purpose wasn't to let Jesus out, as one person said. The purpose was so that stone would be opened up and rolled away so that when they looked inside, they could be able to get into it, not to let Jesus out. And you're going to see that they did. The ladies went in, Peter went in, John went in to get up real close and personal to see where Jesus was laid. And then coming to the conclusion, he's not here. And later on, he's alive and he is alive forevermore. But there's something else. Go in verse 2. Here's what she did. It says, so she ran and came to Simon Peter after she had been to the tomb and saw that the stone was rolled away. And she went to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and we've already studied that, and that would be John, the writer of the Gospel of John that we're reading through right now. So she ran over to Peter, John was with him, and said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. And so Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. Now, it's kind of humorous how this happens, because verse 3 says... So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two of them were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, that would be John, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And so Simon Peter, who was right there kind of coming up right behind, he also came following him, and he entered the tomb where John didn't, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there where Jesus would have been wrapped. Now, while I'm reading that to you, what I'm picturing here, what happened. Mary comes running up. She now says, I don't know where the body is. Peter and John has to go see for themselves. So they kind of head toward the tomb. Well, partly there, you'll notice the changes from they went to the tomb to they were running to the tomb. And if you'll notice, can you picture two men running, almost like in a foot race to see who could get to the tomb fastest? All of a sudden, no, I'm going to go, so they take off. 
And John, as, as humble as he is, he doesn't use his name, but somewhere writing maybe decades later this, he had to kind of throw in as a little zinger that he arrived before Peter. You already know that Peter was pretty competitive himself, always had to be the first one. But the difference was when John got up to the tomb, he kind of stopped right at the entrance of the tomb. And he's looking in and gazing in. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's looking in. Well, by the time Peter arrived, which is probably very shortly thereafter, he now kind of pushes John aside, muscles him way through that little doorway in there to get into the tomb to actually see. But both of them wanted to find out for themselves what happened to Jesus. Was he there? Is he there? What did it look like? A lot of curiosity, especially as it goes against the backdrop of what they've been taught before. So I got thinking about you and me and what we might think about the resurrection. I wonder if we would be so quick, maybe not to run to discover if the tomb is empty, but to run and to discover who Jesus Christ really is. I read a story recently that really touched my heart. There was a five-year-old boy, and his name was Philip, and he would go to school. And uh, the little, little kind of nursery, little five-year-old kindergarten class, the, the teacher, in a very gracious way, would give little, little instructions to the students to go do this or do that. And for whatever reason, little Philip, he was a little slower and had a little time, tough time connecting it. And he never got the directions correct. And when everybody else got it right and Philip got there and he did what he was supposed to do, it was a little off mark. And the other boys would snicker at someone like that and it really hurt Philip. Well, one day near Easter, the teacher decided to give them all a little plastic egg. And some of our kids got this little plastic egg like I'm holding up here. Maybe you can see it. And she took this egg and she opened it up and she said, okay, what I want you boys and girls to do is I want you to take this egg and I want you to fill it up about the resurrection of Jesus and maybe what would it symbolize to you? What, what meaning would you get out of this? Well, the boys ran out and 15 minutes later the teacher gathered them all together and one boy opened up his egg and what do you think was in it? It was a little stone, a little rock. And he said, well, that represents the stone that was in front of the tomb. And another little boy, he works on his egg and he pops it out and oddly enough, he actually captured a little butterfly and it flew away. And so he said, that represents Jesus who's alive. And little Philip came up and he opened up his egg. And when he did, nothing. Nothing in there to represent the resurrection of Christ. And the boys laughed and snickered and all of that. And the teacher said, I see your egg. Would you like to say something, Philip? And he said, sure. I want you to know my egg is empty because my egg represents the tomb and Jesus is alive and he is gone forevermore. Well, that kind of quieted him up. Well, having Down syndrome for so long... About a year later, he got very weak, he got sick, and he died. When he died at his funeral, they give the message and all of that, and at the end of the funeral, all the boys that were salt and peppered in the class were salt and peppered in the, in the congregation. And they came up to the little casket in which Philip was found, and they brought their little plastic eggs like I have, and it was all empty, because they finally realized that Philip really had the greatest truth, that the tomb is empty and that Jesus Christ is alive. And so we believe that on this end, but you know that truth of Jesus Christ being alive could be understood by the youngest person if we explain it to them correctly, slowly, carefully, and clearly. They could understand that Jesus Christ is alive. Well, when Mary and Peter and John and all these guys are now kind of encountering this resurrection situation, I would have thought maybe that when they would find out, oh, the tomb is empty, that they would be flooded with joy and hope and excitement. Well, that wasn't the case. 
When Mary got there, as we look at the story in a moment, she goes there with a, a lot of what we might call confusion. She, she, what, what happened? Where's his body? Where, who took him? They see what, what's going on? A lot of confusion. Next week, we're going to talk about in our lives when we have a lot of doubts in our lives. From this whole passage, we're going to take the next passage of Scripture. And that would represent Thomas. Thomas came when he finally was encountering Christ, the resurrected Christ. His was maybe a little confusion, but his was a little bit more doubts. So he came with doubts. And then the Sunday after that, I'm going to talk about when he faces the rest of the disciples and how fearful they were when they saw Christ. And so we're going to talk about that. As I looked at these different groups of people as they're all encountering Christ, I'm wondering if the Lord in His sovereignty, knowing full well before the foundation of the earth, was calling people together in this entire event like He has all throughout history and even you and me, knowing that we have different emotional responses to things that we don't understand. And in it, he still explains truths to those. He accepts us where they are, and then he takes us because he loves us to the next level. And so with Mary, he does end the confusion. We'll discover that today. With Thomas, the doubts are gone. You'll hear that next week. With the disciples who have fear, those fears are gone, and they become tremendously fearless. And frankly, we are here today because of the fearlessness of those disciples who stood so strong even in the face of death. And so again, Jesus and his resurrection helped us to encounter that. Now today's message is going to be just a little different. I've, ta- I've ta- chosen to take this message from this passage and appeal a little bit more to those that are on the outside of the faith, those that are not certain of eternal life. And I want to show you through this example of Mary, maybe a three-step progression that we might go through in understanding Christ and owning him as our own personal savior. Quickly, the outline is going to be talking about how that when we face Jesus Christ and to alleviate some of those doubts, that we need evidences for our mind. We're not ready yet to put our full, complete faith and confidence in Christ until we really know that He is alive forevermore. He is who He claimed to be, that we really can trust Scripture. So we're going to call it, We Need Evidences. Not everybody does. When I was a young boy coming to Christ, it wasn't that someone had to prove the Bible to me. I don't know where I got it, but I didn't doubt the veracity of Scripture. I was raised in a home that never, really never went to church. We never even had a Bible in our house. But somewhere along the line, I never questioned the authenticity of Scripture. But there are a lot that do, especially today, because so many people have gone on the, on the offensive against Scripture. So maybe that's you. The second area we're going to go to, and that's once we have evidences for the mind, we still have a hard issue. We, we got the truth, but we still don't own it yet. In other words, okay, we agree that that's truth, but we're not yet ready yet to say that's truth for me. So I want to give you some of the answers to the heart. And now, I promise you, Mary will not answer all of your questions that you might have for the heart. But there will be some questions that you might have that Jesus will answer. And I pray you'll listen to that. And then at the end... He speaks to the emotions of the soul so that at the very end of all of this, you're ready to say, I got the evidence. He's answered enough of my heart questions. I am now ready to enter into an emotional, soul, committed relationship with him. I'm ready to, so to speak, put my full faith in Christ. And that kind of thing is I'm so engaged to that. So maybe that's where you're going to be at the end. But I pray that you'll see how that he gingerly and lovingly and compassionately will take this person, Mary, and bring her through those three steps so at the end of this, she owns Christ for herself. 
And maybe that'll be for you. So let's begin, if we will. If you want to know the resurrected Christ, you need to have evidences for the mind. So go back to the passage, if you will, and let me read it to you again, at least verses 3 through verse 9. And we'll see some truths in there that might help you along with the outline that I've given to you. Beginning at verse 3 again, it says, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And then the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. And he came to the tomb first, and he stooped, and he looked in, and he saw the linen wrappings that were there. But he didn't go in. And so Simon also came, following him, and he entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, very similar to what John did, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head in the tomb, not lying with the linen wrappings that were all there. So the tomb had a level shelf on it, a rock shelf perhaps, and all the linen was wrapped up in one little cocoon-looking shape, shape, but the face was wrapped up separate from it, but rolled up in a place all by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw, but now he moves to the and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. That last phrase, well, he would believe, and as yet they didn't understand, you could say it this way. For now they understood as of yet. Before they didn't understand, but as of yet, now they're getting this. They understood. Now you'll notice in your notes that I put down there are three different kinds of explanations or definitions of the word saw. The reason I'm doing that, again, is because intellectually you also may go through that same little step. So let's look at it again just with those words saw. Pick it up at verse 5. It says, in stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there, but he didn't go in. And that would be John. That word saw is a very simple word, and it basically means to glance or to look quickly at. Some of you, you can kind of see something, and you take a glance, and you move on from it. So you kind of saw it, but you didn't really fully understand it. He's looking in, and all he happens to see is, okay, there's the cloth. There's a folded uh, face cloth over there. I'm looking at all of this, and it didn't quite register yet. Now remember, he's on the outside. He didn't get up close and personal. He was on the outside looking, and he gave it that cursory little glance. Doesn't mean he didn't see it, but he didn't see the meaning of it. Now Peter's a little bit different. He goes all the way into the tomb now, and you see the word saw there in verse 6. Following him and entering the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings. Now that's a different Greek word. That's a word that we would get our word theorize, meaning that he looked at it, he looked carefully at it, he observed it, and he's now looking and saying, okay, now, why did it look this way? Now, the commentators are very consistent on this. Their statement is this. If Jesus' body was stolen by grave robbers, it's highly likely that they would have done one of two things. One, they would have ripped off all those bandages that he had, all that wrapping, those grave clothes, and just grabbed the body. Now, for the life of me, maybe because I'm just not a grave robber, I don't know, who would want to steal a dead body that's all beat up and shredded? I, I haven't figured that out, but I can't always figure out the depravity of man. The second would be the grave robbers might leave the body but take the grave clothes or those linens because they would be anointed and there would be something that they could do with that. I haven't dug enough research to find out what it was, but that is an answer. Others then say, well, what really was happening is that when Jesus was in there all wrapped up, he was basically kind of uh, swooning. He was uh, passed out, so to speak, like you might see on a TV show and all of a sudden he kind of wakes up in the cool and the dampness and the darkness of the tomb and he gets revived. And so what would he do? Well, if he did, he would break through those linen 
How would he unwrap himself? Certainly he wouldn't fold it back up again. And then he would then go out of the tomb. Now, logically think about it. Go back to what we studied last week. We went through the entire bodily uh, torturing of him. Then how he was executed on the cross. So you know how horrible condition he was in. And then waking up. Do you think a person that went through that kind of torture would be strong enough to even unwrap his wrappings or even to break through those wrappings? And if he could... Do you think he'd be strong enough to take a boulder stone, B-O-U-L-D-E-R, boulder stone, and roll it away himself? He couldn't have done that. So he couldn't, by his own strength, be able to take him, take that away. And all this was was wrapped up in a cocoon one more time showing that I had victory over death. I can conquer that. If I can get through the tomb, I certainly can get through some linen cloth wrappings, even a head cloth. So now, Peter is trying to figure all this out. Why is it like this? Why is it like that? So he's thinking a little bit. Some of you are at that point. Some of you are now wanting to investigate this, and I want to commend you on it, even if you're not at faith yet. I want to commend you on the research that you're doing, because once you step over the line of faith, you will be such a a courageous and also great defender of the faith, because you'll have your answers ahead of time, where a lot of they believe, and then they have to continue to get their answers afterwards. You're really going to get this stuff. The only thing I caution you is that the Word of God is like the Internet. You'll never get to the end of it. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.